Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, here we go. What's up, everybody? It's David Summers, and we're hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It is the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now we step back into the ring, back into time. We get wall-to-wall and treetop tall with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, how's it been? What's going on? Oh, geez, man. Just uh, up here in the old Smokies, uh, trying to stay out of the snow. Uh, and looking at the mountains, man, I can see them from where I live, uh, and there's snow on top of them, but uh, thank goodness a lot of that hadn't gotten down to ground level where we are at this point. <laughs> so uh, uh, just enjoying it, man. Uh, kind of freaky weather all around the country. Uh, what's going on in California has been crazy. and. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I think uh, just last night you had some storms probably in your area. Houston got uh, tornadoes. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. wow, it's been a crazy, crazy year for weather. Yeah. Do, um, you, do you get the feeling that are you are you still ahead of wintertime? Is winter just setting in in the Smokies where you are near Knoxville? No, I think, you know, at this point uh, we're darn near, uh, you know, we're in the last part of it. We'll get winter uh, through February, but... Starting by uh, middle of March, early March, uh, we start to our temperatures start to come back up again. That's good. So That's, yeah. We've kind of weathered the storm, and we haven't. We've only had one snow here. Yeah, where I am now, so uh, it's not been a, not been a bad thing, uh, you know. But I like to see a little snow every once in a while. <laughs> well, you know how how it is in Southeast Alabama. It gets pretty cold from time to time. Then all of a sudden, boom! Put your shorts on. We're done. So anyway, yeah. that, that could happen at any moment. Hey, listen, I got to admit, Ron, the first look at this Studcast title kind of had me scratching my head. This is episode number 284. Number 284 is this one. It's called The Anatomy of My Wrestling War. I never know where we're going to be going each week, but I certainly have no idea this week for sure. So I'm assuming we're going to be talking war the whole show, maybe uh, we're, we're going to be, it's such a big subject. And, uh, it was so much a part of the year 1979 that, you know, we're going to have to uh, do something, uh, to get all the facts and figures and uh, all the information in to fans out there. And uh, so, yeah, you know, uh, and, and to be honest with you, man, the listeners have kind of gotten my attention. Uh, 
I've seen a lot of comments about what, uh, you know, they're, they're really focused on what we're focusing on in the last few studcasts, and, uh, and especially the discussions about the upcoming Southeastern Knoxville Russian War. And uh, many fans all over the world have gotten the opportunity, obviously, to experience great wrestling. But very few of them, man, have ever heard anything like what we're going to talk about today and what went on behind the kayfabe curtain. And uh, especially something like this, Studcast, uh, we're going to take fans inside, on the inside of a wrestling war. And uh, wow, <laughs> that, that, there wasn't a whole lot of that going on around the world. Uh, <laughs> So, so we've already, uh, you know, uh, started to give listeners a little bit of what happened behind the curtain in the Southeastern Territories in 1979. Uh, but I can kind of tell from the comments I'm getting that, that it's only kind of whetted the fans' appetite here, man, uh, the, the wrestling war stuff. And, and I know what I said at the end of last week's studcast that if we were going to be, what well, we were going to be discussing today about the normal scenario we normally do in our format. But because of all this newfound interest in the war, uh, you know, I'm kind of going to take a detour from the normal format today. And I hope fans are going to be all right with that. But uh, if we don't, we're not going to be able to cover everything that happened in 1979 properly. So for me, the start of 1979 was the beginning of, I guess, what you'd call the perfect personal storm, man. <laughs> And in, in this special studcast, we're going to spend some time setting the table for a deep dive into a really ugly wrestling history, a piece of really ugly wrestling history, exactly what it is. And we're going to begin to break down the Knoxville War in 1979 into pieces. We'll do a little bit of that today. And hopefully this episode, this, this studcast is going to help everybody to be better able to digest uh, basically the heartburn. And the heartache I experienced in this war, man. Wow. So it sounds like we may be in for an unusual meal of sorts today, because I haven't said it, Stud, but with just the little that we've gotten into the war of 1979, it seems like the more I hunger for more of this to, to learn more about this. So what are you going to start to set? The, what do you how do you set the table for this? Well, that's a. Uh, that's a good question, actually, Dave. You know, so uh, let's start with the end of 1978. I think that's a good place to start with this studcast. And uh, I had uh, finished off my best year up to that point in my wrestling career. And uh, but it was nowhere near close to the success that I was going to have coming down the road. But but I was at least at this point, uh, you know, I was finally in uh, 1978. Uh, Early 79, I was finally eating some hamburgers rather than those hot dogs in 75, you know, that first year as a territory owner. I knew what it was like to get hungry, man, you know, and when things weren't so good. And, uh, and I'm going to get a taste of it again. You know, both Southeastern Territories in 1978 obviously were on fire because I had some of the best wrestlers in the world in those territories. I was really lucky. And, uh, and I don't normally do this, but uh, I want to do something else different, uh, a little bit different today too, Dave. Uh, you know, the, uh, those guys in uh, 1978 who ran the roads with me and uh, sweated their rear ends off and uh, sometimes uh, bled to their wrestling boots, man, uh, back in 1978, 
uh, didn't get near the credit for it, uh, I think, that they deserved. And uh, so I kind of worked a little bit uh, on this one, uh, uh, preparing something in advance, Dave, because I want to start this stud cast off differently uh, with a special tribute uh, to some of those wrestlers in 1978. Uh, we want to talk about those guys who gave their all and at least six southern states to put southeastern on the map. Uh, I want to apologize in advance to those that I may accidentally leave off of this list that I'm about to talk about. And uh, every single wrestler that worked for me in the year contributed to that success. So I just want to run through some of the names that wrestled with my companies in 1978. Uh, Ronnie Garvin, Joe LaDuke, the Mongolian Stomper, Tony Charles, Tora Tanaka, the great Malenko, Jack Briscoe, Kevin Sullivan, Ken Lucas, Don Carson, uh, three assassins, the assassin Jody Hamilton, uh, the assassin, uh, the two assassins in the southeastern Gulf Coast Territory, Randy Colley and Roger Smith. Uh, David Schultz, Dennis Condry, and Phil Hickerson, great team during a lot of 78 in, uh, in the southeastern Knoxville. Bob Orton Jr., Bob Rue, wow. the wrestling pro, Leon <laughs> Baxter, Mike Stallings, the big cat, Ernie Ladd, yeah. <laughs> Tommy Rich, Mr. Wrestling 2, Sylvester Ritter, the junkyard dog. The Sheik wrestled for me in 1978. Norvell Austin, Charlie Cook, Buzz Sawyer, Thunderbolt Patterson, T.O. and Reno, the Samoans, Eddie Mansfield, Rip Smith, Dick Steinborn, Ricky Gibson, Robert Gibson, Rocket Monroe, Eddie Sullivan, Doug Gilbert, Ron Slinker, Don Fargo, Ricky Fields, Bill Dundee, Jerry Lawler, Jim Brunzel out of the AWA, Terry Gibbs, Dennis Hall, Ken Dillinger, Frankie Lane, Jim Dalton, and Greg Peterson. Wow. That, that's an amazing, an amazing list. But I, I'm missing a couple of names. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You got to, if you if you got some ideas, man, you know somebody I missed, throw them in there, man. Please. Uh, you didn't say Ron right. Oh, wait a minute. I haven't finished, my man. I just finished the wrestlers. Right. And we had four managers in that year. Okay. 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 <laughs> territory. Wow. Ron Wright and the gorgeous George Jr. And uh, Billy Spears. And we had Rip Tyler. So, and then I also want to thank the world champions that were in 78, Terry Funk and Harley Race, uh, the world junior heavyweight champion, Nelson Royal. The world's ladies champion, Fabulous Moolah, and of course, Andre the Giant, who's <laughs> in, obviously a class of his own. No doubt. And, uh, and, then, and then finally, man, I want to take, I want to uh, thank my partners, basically. Uh, you know, uh, my partners, obviously, were Bob Armstrong, uh, my brother Robert, uh, my cousins, Jimmy Golden and Roy Lee Welch. And I want to thank my dad, who wrestled for me in that same year as well. Wow. All right, so you've never done anything like this before, Ron, but that's an incredible list of stars, really a who's who of Southeastern. I mean, the entire country, Southeastern wrestling, no doubt about it. I think it's one of the most respectful things 
that you may have ever done on any stud cast. So that's pretty cool that you recognize every one of those in the importance that they played, the important part that they played in developing this, these two territories over time. So how, how do you follow that? Well, since this is probably uh, only the first of many short anatomies of the wrestling war of 1979, which is the title of this one, uh, why don't we start with my first critical mistake, man? Let's start at the beginning here, you know? And, uh, and it, it may have been made, it, it may have, uh, my first mistake probably had the biggest impact on the war of, of anything I did. And that mistake was the hiring of Bob Root to replace my brother as Booker for Southeastern Knoxville in early September 1978. Uh, and I touched on this slightly in, in recent studcasts. Uh, the fact that Roop was hired as Booker by another a member of the National Wrestling Alliance, Roy Shires, who was the owner of the San Francisco NWA territory. And um, Bob Roop, uh, while booking for him, tried to steal his territory in 1977 uh, before he ever came to Southeastern. And, uh, you know, and if I hadn't known that in 1978, I wouldn't even have brought him into my territory, much less made him my booker. Mm -hmm. you no, know, I, I was, I re really didn't get, nobody gave me the heads up on what had happened out there on the West Coast. And it, it also turned out that he was one of those wrestlers that felt like he always deserved a bigger payoff than he got. You know, there were, wasn't a lot of those guys, but he was one of them. And we had an excellent reputation around the world for payoffs. Uh, we paid 28% of the gross house on every event to the wrestlers and the referees. It was pretty much common knowledge around the country that, that we were good payoff people. And, uh, and most companies around the world paid only around 20% of the total gate. Wow. And we were talking. So obviously we're paying almost a third more to our wrestlers and referees than most companies were. Mm -hmm. and, and I never had any complaints about my payoffs. In the almost four years of an owner at this point, uh, we started in 1974, 75, we're in 1979. I never had any complaints about the payoffs in the first four years before Bob Roop arrived. Which is why I would ask, why would he question payoffs since he was the booker? I mean, what do you think was, that's not how you set up your wrestling crew. And it doesn't sound like he was leading by example. Yeah, you're right about that. And, uh, you know, it doesn't make much sense. Uh, you know, it was certainly not what bookers ordinarily did. I can tell you that. I mean, uh, uh, they didn't keep a job very long if they did. So, and problem was, I didn't find out about this at the, at the beginning. I found out later that he had this horrible attitude and he thought all wrestlers were being cheated on their payoffs. Not just my wrestlers, but he thought worldwide that the wrestlers are being hit, were being cheated. So he tried to convince wrestlers in my territory that the owners of wrestling companies worldwide were making far more from the events than they deserved. And not only that, I found out later, he had been for years making an attempt to unionize wrestlers, which that had never been done, you know. He, and he was obsessed with unionizing wrestlers. And, uh, and he talked to many guys about it. The uh, problem was, man, that I never knew any of this for a long time, and I found about it too late. Wow. So what do you think that kind of talk was saying to his crew? 
Well, you know, I know an employee in charge of your wrestlers and preaching that type of dialogue on a regular basis would have been very detrimental to any company. Yeah. It doesn't make any difference what your company is. Right. If you've got employees and you've got the man in charge of uh, taking care of them that's saying you're not getting paid enough. Yeah. You're gonna have it's problems. A, yeah, to me, if he's if he's let me say this, if he's bitching, then he's gonna have everybody else on the on the on the crew doing the same thing. Okay, yeah. and if you bear in mind what happened out there in California, you know, even though everybody in the crew had been happy with their money, this right. kind of talk was designed, man, basically to slowly create a distrust of the owner. Mm -hmm. Basically, what he was doing here, laying the foundation uh, for, you know, uh, your owner ain't what he ought to be, and he's not treating you right. And and that was his first step, basically, in trying to take over my company in 1979. And from what I found out later, he deceptively kind of picked and chose the wrestlers and the crew that he felt might be somewhat receptive to his ideas. And uh, and he didn't tell anybody that what he thought uh, if he wasn't uh, sure of where they, they might, uh, how they were going to accept it, you know. Uh, so, so he sold it slowly, man, this concept that, you know, uh, yeah, we're not making the kind of money we ought to be making. Uh, and he sold it to those who listened over a period of time, starting basically in 1979. So um, over the next three months, he gained a couple of supporters by constantly asking what they were paid and, and questioning the legitimacy of the payoffs they received. I mean, that's horrible. I mean, you don't go around to the guys. Uh, guys didn't ask the other guys, what did you make? You know, and when no. you're the booker and you say, what did you get paid tonight? Oh, that wasn't very, no, that wasn't what you had to come in. Wow. <laughs> so the size of the crowds and, and basically while all this is going on, the sides of the crowds up there in the Knoxville area were dropping because to be honest with you, he wasn't a very good booker. And uh, naturally uh, the wrestlers payoffs dropped a little bit because payoffs were based on the size of the crowds. So when the house was down, obviously the payoffs were down. Um, so um, yeah, then he began the, another way to spread distrust uh, by constantly saying that the crowds were bigger than what they actually were. <laughs> so now he's got he's doubling up on his his, his line here, you know. Wow. And uh, then when the payoffs were down, uh, saying someone went in the company, uh, he said, "Well, you know." Gosh, this crowd was really big, and you got that bad a payoff, you know? Then he started just out and out saying, well, only thing that can be going on here, boys, is somebody's stealing money God. from the wrestlers, from you. God. And from me. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> right? I mean, so this is, this is what is happening uh, in the early part of 1979, uh, based upon uh, the what my booker was doing. And to make matters worse, I was not in the, in the territory very much because the Gulf Coast Territory wasn't doing well due to what's going on in the Memphis Territory, which we're going to talk about later in this studcast. And it was taking a lot of our stars out of that, out of that Gulf Coast Territory in the first six months of 1979. And I was having to go down there and work a lot uh, more than I normally would have because we didn't have the crew down there that we should have had. And, uh, so during that time, uh, while I was gone, he was steady sowing this distrust 
in the, in the, in amongst the Knoxville crew until about May of 1979 when he heard my brother and I might be coming back. My brother had gone to Memphis. Mm -hmm. uh, I was spending a lot of time down there. All of a sudden, about May of 1979, he hears that my brother might be coming back. He also realized that it, the towns were down. Business wasn't good. Like he was saying, oh, gosh, the house is better than ever. Mm -hmm. Well, the guys, you know, <laughs> they know better than that. So in early May of 1979, he finally got confident enough to call a private meeting of all the wrestlers, except the chosen few, like obviously Bob Armstrong, <laughs> mm -hmm. who he never mentioned anything about any of this to, obviously, because he knew Bob would never buy into that bullshit. <laughs> you know, he wasn't going to do. He mm -hmm. wasn't going to say, "Oh yeah, I see that," you know. And uh, and then he also knew that Bob would come immediately to me. Mm -hmm. We're partners. Yeah. So. Uh, so I would find out later in that uh, in that private meeting that, that he had suggested they they were all being cheated. He just basically in this meeting says we're all being screwed here, guys. And uh, and then he said I'm going to demand a meeting with Ron, and I'm going to find out if somebody's stealing money here from every house and 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 all of us here. Okay, so in any company, doesn't matter what kind of company you own or run. Sowing those kind of seeds of discourse are immediate, immediate dismissal for anybody. And especially if you're talking about how much another person pays on somebody's staff, that is absolutely crazy. So some guys were not aware any of this was even going on. And so did he come to you like he told him he was going to do? Uh, yeah. Yeah. He, you know, he, I had no idea what was happening. So some guys knew, uh, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, about any of it, uh, uh, and knew nothing about any of it. And he had chosen his group very carefully. And at that meeting, uh, he, he never suggested to any of them that doing anything more than to come in to see me on behalf of all of them. That's all he said. I'm just going to go see him and I'm going to find out for all of us what's going on here. So we did have a meeting. In my Knoxville condo in the early part of May 1979, uh, he told me he had a lot of guys in the crew that were very upset because their payoffs, because of their payoffs, and uh, and uh, were not what they. Because he said basically to me, the payoffs aren't what they should be, you know. And he said that someone, you know, Ron, uh, I don't think you know it, but somebody in your company here's got to be stealing money. Because the houses are bigger than they've ever been, and the payoffs are much smaller than they've ever been, and uh, you know, but he was he was really not very smart because I'd always made the payoffs for the territory, mm -hmm. even when I was living in Pensacola. So I knew what the size of the crowds were. I knew what the house was, you know. So I was shocked to hear that the guys in my crew were extremely unhappy. And, I, and I'd never in my five years heard that. Uh, and I asked him if that was for every city, including Knoxville, all the towns down. I mean, uh, all the payoffs are, are, are smaller, including Knoxville. Now, I definitely knew the crowds were down uh, from what they had been in the previous two years. And from what I had witnessed when, when I was working Knoxville, you know, uh, 
I had a, and I had a couple of uh, trusted elderly ladies that had been selling tickets in all the smaller cities for years. Mm -hmm. I'd never had a question about their honesty, but I, I had not, uh, I had not been going to many of the smaller cities in the Knoxville territory. Mm -hmm. I'd been working steady in 78 all that time in 78. I wanted to take off some nights in the middle of the week when I was in the Knoxville territory and I didn't go to all the small towns. But I did, however, know exactly how big the Knoxville Coliseum and Chai Park crowds were and uh, what the gross money was because those ladies and, and nobody else in my company sold the tickets in those matches and in those venues. Mm. They were city-owned buildings, and they handled the ticket sales for every event themselves in the city. So I had learned how to judge basically as a young wrestler, like so many young wrestlers do. And uh, gosh, the guys become great at it. I'd learned how to judge the size of the crowd uh, at an early age in my career. Uh, and guys could go out and look at a big crowd and tell you sometimes within 200 people of a 10,000 10, uh, house. Mm -hmm. 10,000 fans there, you know mm -hmm. I mean? They were great at it. And I'd gotten to be pretty darn good at it, too. Uh, many wrestlers were really good at it because, basically, your money is based upon the crowd, right? Yeah. So yeah. you want to get to being able to go out and eye a crowd and go, wow, I should make such and such tonight pretty close to it. And you should be pretty close to that figure. Mm -hmm. So I was very comfortable with the Knoxville figures being correct especially the Knoxville figures. We didn't handle the money. The city handled the money. They always had. And uh, and uh, since uh, we didn't handle the ticket sales, uh, you know, I had uh, personally uh, been there on many of those crowds since Bob Roop had been the booker of those Knoxville shows. And I judged the house myself. I made the payoffs. So I knew that there was nothing going on there. Wow. So did he just think you were just, just taking complete – Time off period, had no idea what was going. Did, did he think you didn't get a report of what was happening night after night at every show? I mean, that is crazy. So did you do anything more to check out his claim of someone stealing or was that even necessary? Well, I, you know, I was very concerned, man. Uh, you know, I don't want my boys uh, 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 thinking that uh, something's going wrong, especially with their money. So, yeah, I certainly did. I checked on it. Uh, uh, so uh, I, the only place that I could have been correct about someone stealing, obviously, was in these smaller cities. And I had the perfect guy to go to for the info on that. Mm. And, and that was Mac McMurray, man. Wow. Yeah. Guy who came with me from Florida in 1974, who loaned me the down payment to buy my first wrestling company. <laughs> I trusted him. And, uh, and more than anyone, obviously. Um, and, uh, and I trusted him with uh, more than just my money. I trusted him with my life. Mm -hmm. I loved this guy. He yeah. was very, very honest. Yeah. He had been in every city every night since we arrived wow. five years earlier. He hauled the ring to every town. He refereed every match. And he had become just as proficient at gauging the size of a crowd as I was. Mm 
Because when we first started, we we took guesses for a long time. Mm -hmm. What's the house? Looking at the crowd, and then at the end of the night, he'd say, what was it? And uh, we got to be so darn good at it. I knew he could do it as well as I could. And Mac, I got to say, Mac is the man that you you basically say is the one who saved Southeastern wrestling. He was that trusted. And God rest his soul. He was he was really one of the best. And I'm I'm thankful that I had the opportunity to meet him and actually see him in action a little bit in the last number of years. Yeah, he was an extremely trustworthy guy uh, and honest as the day is long. And uh, so, you know, we we actually talked uh, Mac and I about what Rupert said to me the day before. You know, I brought him right in. I said, Mac, I need to talk to you, man. And he was as shocked as I was when he heard that the guys are unhappy with their pay because, you know, they they weren't saying anything to him about it. So I asked him, I said, Mac, I want you to pick somebody every night uh, in the crowd that you are familiar with. And all these towns he'd been to uh, 20, 30 times. And he had somebody in every town that he really he really knew very well. And I said, for the next two weeks, I don't want my two ticket sellers to be aware of what we're doing. I want you to find this guy, and uh, and I want you to give him one of those manual clickers. You ever seen those little deals, Dave? You, you put it in the palm of your hand, and oh, yeah. when a oh, yeah. when counter, it's a it's a yeah. body counter, basically. Yeah. Right? I said, you get this guy to click the house. And, uh, and, uh, so, and I, we're going to do it for two weeks. So, the so that, uh, and said, just don't let the ticket sellers know what's going on that it's being done. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a, uh, in its day, that was about as modern as you could get, but that's a great idea. It should definitely tell the story about the honesty of, of what was happening here. So what was, how about the results on, on that test? Well, there was no difference between the number of tickets sold on the ticket manifest uh, used to count the, you know, the size of the crowd and the result of the clicker and being used to count the fans. So obviously, bang, there was no theft. It it just wasn't there. Mm. You know, uh, there wasn't happening. Mm, that's amazing. So I doubt that fans anywhere in the world have heard anything like this. So. Let's let's keep you got to keep going. So what happened next? Well, after the two weeks of looking into Roop's claim, uh, I went to him and I told him that I had checked it all out and there was no theft that I could find. So he went back and called another private meeting of the wrestlers. And I didn't know this either. You know, uh, he was keeping all this under under hat. uh, And he told them that uh, I denied that any theft had ever taken place. And then he made his move. Uh, he, had, he knew Rob was maybe coming back. Uh, you know, he had played his, his, his card here. And uh, mm-hmm. so he told them all that he had been putting something together with a few other guys in the crew. And uh, plans were being made uh, to leave the present company uh, and uh, to take over the territory. And uh, that a new owner might be just might be more honest than than the present owner, and uh, and you know and and then better still, he told them, if all of them together decided to leave the company at the same time, they could potentially take over the company themselves, and all of them be the new owners, and then you know it'd be a lot more money each night could be paid to all of us rather than just that one guy, mm. <laughs> meaning wow. me. 
Yeah. All right. So that's, I mean, that's incredible. That's just, that's crazy, horrible, stupid. I, I, I don't mean that he, that he had that in his mind at all. So how did you find out about all this? Surely you, you had some, you had some folks on, that, that were working there that were loyal to you, very loyal to you still. Well, you remember, Dave, in last week's studcast, uh, D- Dick Slater showed up on the scene. And uh, and I said in last week's studcast that Dick Slater was going to be a critical player in the Knoxville War. So Dick Slater, in his second week there, you know, he had been there just a short period of time. Uh, but he had, he had heard all of this. You know, he'd been there and made these meetings, these two key meetings. And so he came to me the day of this last meeting that Rupe had with the wrestlers. And he told me everything he knew, that there were definitely going to be five of the 16-man crew. Five of the 16 guys were working in the territory that were going to be leaving. Uh, it was going to be Bob Rupe. It was going to be Bob Orton Jr. It was going to be the great Malenko. It was going to be Ronnie Garvin. And it was going to be Ron Wright. And he didn't know who else might be going to willing to join him. That's a true friend right there. So why did why had he waited so long to to get with you about this? Oh, well, that, that's a good question. And uh, in fact, I asked him that, you know, and uh, and he said that Bob Roop had approached him with some suspicious ideas. But he he was he said, Ron, I was hopeful that it wasn't going to happen, you know, and and and, and you would never have to even know it, right? He said. So he said, uh, and he said, I, I knew how bad it would hurt you, man, to find out that some of your friends and some of these guys he'd been done business with for years were going to turn on you, man. Wow. And uh, and he said, you know, and and I he said I, I waited. I waited because, to see if it was going to happen, you know, and, and then if it did happen, he said, uh, I wanted to find out everything about it before I said anything to you. Basically, he was saying, you know, Ron, I, I, was, I felt sorry for you, man, and your mm-hmm. situation that you're about to be in. And I wanted to make sure that it was going to go down that way before I even alerted you to it. Well, I mean, everything was happening behind your back. You had no knowledge of anything that was going on. I mean, obviously you were keeping up with a report of what was going on with, with each town and each event in each town. So you knew what was happening for at least to a degree in your company, but the, the whole Bob Root thing, I'm telling you, you nailed it when you called this studcast anatomy of my wrestling war. Another name might be the horror of your wrestling war. So <laughs> since I, I tell you, since I've been the co-host of these studcasts, there's never been anything close to what we've just heard in the first part of this one. And I'm assuming we're going to tell more of this story as we continue. This is a good spot for a break. Hey, let's do that. I'm almost f- afraid to hear what's next, but stay with us. This intriguing studcast We'll continue right after this. Hey, everybody, it's David Summers. And on the break, we want to thank everybody who asked questions for or listened to the first tremendous Ask the Stud YouTube exclusive Southeastern Rewind show. It is the talk of the wrestling world and a perfect example of Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud's amazing knowledge of old school wrestling history. Don't miss the second one. It's coming Saturday. February 18th, 2023 on YouTube's Southeastern Rewind. And if you'd like to leave a question, do that. Look for Rod on Facebook and Twitter and leave your questions there. 
Okay, welcome back. It's another, this one, very intriguing studcast. Episode number 284 called Anatomy of My Wrestling War. So uh, over time, if you've been listening to these studcasts, you've been hearing Rod talk about an impending war. So now this is definitely war talk. So, So Ron, how much shocking wrestling history and intrigue is in the second part of this studcast as we resume? (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, I hate to say it, but just about the same amount that was in the first party, except this time we're going to be 500 miles south. We're going to be in the southeastern Gulf Coast territory. And uh, so last episode, we found a new booker for that territory down there, uh, Louis Tillette. And, uh, and I found him in the Florida territory. And I said last week in this studcast, we we're going to spend some time finding out what plans what his plans were for the Gulf Coast Territory. Rob's going to Memphis. And, uh, you know, Louis. And, in fact, uh, a few days ago, that was, that was a, a really coincidence, Dave. I saw a photo on Facebook with Louis Tillette uh, in the first week of 1979 <laughs> as a, in the ring and a substitute partner with Dusty Rhodes in the <laughs> Florida Territory. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was at least Louis' second time through that territory. And he had been the booker there, Louis, in 1972 in the Florida Territory. Uh, how, did, how did you find out about him in 1979? Well, I went back to my roots, man, uh, to, uh, to the last territory I ever worked in before I became an owner of Southeastern, started my own company. I contacted, man, my old mentor, uh, one of the most respected and connected wrestlers and owners and promoters in the world at that time, Eddie Graham. Uh, He was a lifelong friend of my father uh, and a major stockholder along with my my father in the Florida Territory down there. Uh, So uh, oddly enough, we had just run a combined event with Eddie and the Florida Territory in their Tallahassee Sports Stadium building just a couple of studcasts ago, man. Uh, in the first week of January 1979, they were trying to get out of Tallahassee, and they they wanted us to take over their town and split the money with them. So, you know, uh, of all places I go to find a booker, it happens to be that Eddie and Eddie already has a relationship, uh, an up-to-date relationship with Louis Tillette. So, uh so, uh, you know, Eddie and my father had already been talking about what was happening in the Memphis Territory. They spoke all the time, Dad. They just inherited my granddad's uh, part, of the, part of the Memphis and uh, part of the Tennessee Territory. So Eddie really knew the position I was in because he knew that Rob was going to be going into Memphis as a booker. And uh, he knew the and how sticky and a bad situation I was in that territory because I was losing a good booker and I had an extremely short notice, man, that he was going to be gone. Uh, things like that, when you switch bookers uh, and you're changing talent, uh, you need to do that over a period of months, not in a matter of weeks. So uh, Eddie was, he had been in the business for most of his life. He had experienced it all. So uh, luckily, lucky, you know, uh, Louis was finishing up for Eddie. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Eddie, without hesitation, said, Ron, yes, you you can talk to him. You, you need him. You can have him. No problem, man. 
So, and that was the way, you know, talent was supposed to be transferred, especially office talent, like a booker was supposed to be handled. Mm -hmm. Not like my father had done it with my brother here, Mm -hmm. you know. They talked to him, they Mm -hmm. didn't talk to me, and, you know, (laughs) I'm kind of the guy that uh, should be saying, hey, yeah, you can take my booker. (laughs) Right. One thing to take a wrestler, but it's much, much different to say, uh, I want to take your booker, you know. So... (laughs) Louis was very excited about the opportunity, uh, you know, and, uh, and, 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 and why really it was kind of like the old saying go. And I think I've said this before, you know, it, uh, you tell a, tell a wrestler, you may telephone, telegraph, tell a wrestler, you know, and he, he, along with almost everybody in the wrestling world had heard about our Gulf coast success and how we exploded business there in less than a year. So, uh, we were old friends, he and I. Uh, he had already worked for me in Knoxville in late 1975 as a wrestler, and he helped teach me some booking in the process. In 1975, I was just starting to, to figure, trying to figure out how to be a good booker. Uh, Louis was from Montreal, Canada, but he had spent many years in the South. He loved the southern United States, and he was ecstatic to get the job. Uh, he was really excited. Uh he was always loaded with ideas. And, uh, and uh, you know, I said we'll talk a little bit about his ideas. And he always loved the fact that uh, he really loved the fact that he wasn't even going to have to leave the state of Florida to switch from Tampa. He's going to have to just move to Pensacola. So he's still going to be in the state of Florida. So one of his first suggestions to me was that Dick Steinborn, that had also worked for me, and he worked with Louie and me in Knoxville, 1975, early 1976, that he told me Dick Steinborn might be available and was now living with his father, Milo Steinborn, in Orlando, Florida. Wait, now, wait a second, Stud. Could, haven't, I, haven't we heard about Milo Steinborn before in one of your stud cast in the past? <laughs> Very good, Dave. Uh, uh, yes, uh, you certainly have. I mean, uh, Dick's father. Milo Steinborn uh, was the local Orlando promoter for the Florida Territory for Eddie Graham and my dad. Uh, and, uh, and Milo was a former wrestler. He was a world-famous powerlifter, man, and stunt specialist in his early life. And In fact, he was, he was famous for so many tremendous strengths of feet, uh, one of which was getting underneath a full-grown elephant and lifting all four of its legs off the ground. Can you imagine that? <laughs> no. He bent over, got <laughs> under the elephant, and lifted his all four of his legs off the ground. Are so, you uh, serious? Wow. I'm serious. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I'll tell you how serious I am about it. So fans out there, if, if uh, you know nothing about this guy, uh, I highly recommend you Google Milo Steinborn. And you are going to see some jaw-dropping, uh, jaw-dropping feats of strength. Milo Steinborn was truly amazingly strong. So uh, and that's the son of Dickie Steinborn. Wow. All right. So fans can expect to find most anything here on these studcasts. So you found a booker, Louis Tillette. So where do we go from here? Well, in order to truly get a proper anatomy of my Knoxville wrestling war, uh, we're going to do something that we'd never done before on the studs cast. Uh, we're going to do something today that we've never done. Uh, we're going into a third territory today, the Memphis territory. 
the one my brother was about to go to and become the booker in. Uh, he started in Memphis on Monday night, January the 21st, 1979. That's almost exactly 44 years to the day from the date we're recording this, Dave, that my brother went into Memphis uh, to become the booker there, 1979. Okay, so that was really a remarkable coincidence, but a great way to tell the whole story by giving listeners a front row seat, I guess you would say, to the matches in a third territory. Was this the first time Robert had been there since being hired as Booker? Yeah, it was. Uh, and But it was, uh, it was not only just him there from uh, the Southeastern Gulf Coast Territory on that card. Mm -hmm. There were five other wrestlers from Southeastern Gulf Coast on that card on June, January 21st, mm -hmm. plus one of them. Uh, from southeastern Knoxville. Uh, wait a second. So, uh, did you say there were seven southeastern wrestlers on the card in Memphis, January 21st of 79, the first night Robert became Booker there? <laughs> uh, that's exactly what I said, my man. Uh, you know, <laughs> and I had a new Booker, Louis Toled, in the southeastern Pensacola. And, and I'd committed to help my father and his partner, Jerry Jarrett, in their Memphis territory. Uh, because the territory, their territory was in horrible shape, really bad shape. And, and it was a good deal for my brother, and it was going to be good for my father, and it was going to be good for Jerry Jarrett as well. But it was going to be the second worst mistake I'd made for Southeastern after hiring Bob Roop as an Oxville booker. As part of the deal, uh, I didn't tell him, um, you know, I didn't, uh, didn't tell him that we would be uh, sending our wrestlers in great numbers. Uh, over there to the territory. My brother was going to do the booking for him. But, you know, I didn't say, well, we're going to send you a bunch of wrestlers and uh, you can have our wrestlers too. Uh, you know, <laughs> I said, but I did commit. I said, we'll send you guys to Memphis because it runs on runs on Monday nights. And uh, and because Memphis is your biggest city and it's again your biggest building. In fact, that building, Mid-South Auditorium and Mid-South uh, Coliseum held 11,000 fans. Wow. So if it was full on every Monday night, their business was definitely going to survive. You know, that's enough money there in 11,000 people that, uh, that you're not going to be in trouble anymore. Oh, for real. So who were the six Southeastern wrestlers other than Robert, their new booker, on that first card in Memphis? Well, from Southeastern Gulf Coast, the Mongolian Stomper went. Uh, gorgeous George <laughs> Jr. went. Yeah. David Schultz went. Wow. Don Carson went. And uh, from Southeastern Knoxville, Rip Smith went. And I went. All right. That's really fascinating. An example of how two wrestling promotions work together to create success. So how many total matches did that include? And who was in those matches? Well, there were seven total matches on the card. Uh, two of those had only their wrestlers in it, in the in those two matches. Uh, five others were matches involved some of our wrestlers. So uh, the, here's basically their card. Uh, the two top matches was Austin Idol versus Jerry Lawler, and Bill Dundee versus Chris Von Cole. And the next five matches were a combination of both territories' wrestlers. Uh, Mongolian Stomper was going to be managed by Gorgeous George Jr., just as he was in southeastern Knoxville and in southeastern Gulf Coast. 
but Stomper's going to be taking on two of their wrestlers that night in a handicap match. And those two wrestlers was Robert Gibson and Coco Beware. Uh, Rip Smith from Knoxville uh, and Tommy Gilbert were going to be wrestling against David Schultz, obviously from the Gulf Coast Territory. Uh, Rip Smith was from Knoxville and uh, Wayne Ferris. And both of those two guys on that team, David Schultz and Wayne Ferris, were both trained by my grandfather's brother, Roy Welch. I mean, Herb Welch, mm-hmm, <laughs> my mm-hmm. grandfather's brother, Herb. Yeah. So, wow, you know, pretty pretty, pretty big coincidences going on here. Uh, Robert and I wrestled on that card against Don Fargo and The Shadow. And Don Carson from the Gulf Coast wrestled partners with Dennis Condry. And they wrestled against Pez Watley and a guy named Roger Howell. So uh, in, uh, in the opening match, Gorgeous George Jr., obviously the manager of the Stomper, actually wrestled in the first match against another Welch, Jackie Welch, mm-hmm. uh, another family member, the brother of Roy Lee Welch, who was running business uh, down in Pensacola and, uh, and living in Pensacola and in Gulf Coast uh, and southeastern Gulf Coast. Okay, in your case, I, I'm sure you probably didn't have any idea what to expect that night, but what was the, what was the crowd like? Well, the the crowd was the smallest I'd ever seen in that building. Uh, it was announced it's three thousand six hundred. Uh, that territory was in the same bad shape uh, as it was in the fall of nineteen seventy four when I started Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, you know, uh, over there I was over there in Knoxville. Uh, they weren't doing very good in Memphis at that point in seventy four either. Uh, Jerry Jarrett uh, hired me in uh, December of 1974 to work Memphis for him on Monday nights. Only Memphis uh, actually paid me $1,000 a night because he needed talent. He didn't have any talent that was was worth anything. So I remember the crowd on that first night that I went to Memphis in 1974, and it was bigger than this crowd was five years later in 1979. So it was obviously uh, obvious that, that that as a territory they were in big trouble there. And uh, but but I really knew from experience, knowing Memphis and having wrestled there for almost seven months straight, that uh, how quickly that city could respond to great wrestling. And uh, so uh, I remember that first night in 1974 was a horrible crowd, somewhere around that 3,600 figure that we were talking about that this one was. Uh, and four months later, in April of 1975, we sold out the 11,000 seats in the Mid-South Coliseum when I wrestled Jack Briscoe for the world title. So fans there knew great wrestling when they saw it. Mm-hmm. So uh, just uh, one more quick uh, comparison of the box office receipts from the two territories, the Memphis Territory and the Southeastern Gulf Coast in early 1979. Memphis had 900,000 people living there in that city. Mm-hmm. Mobile, Alabama had less than 200,000 people. Wow. Memphis drew 3,600 fans that night. We're talking about January 21st, 1979. Uh, five days earlier in Mobile, Alabama on a Wednesday night, we drew 5,300 fans <sighs> and sold it out and turned away another thousand beyond that. Wow. So. I really had not thought about it in those terms, but like you said earlier, those numbers prove they really were in trouble. And I know you, you like to, you like to watch the matches. You like to kind of 
unseen behind the curtain so you can see what's going on and the reaction of the fans. So what was that like? Did you get a chance to check out the matches to see what the fans were into? Yeah, I watched every minute of it, man. You know, I mean, at this point, hey, God, I was highly invested in this territory, even though I didn't own a single cent. <laughs> you know, I didn't own a single percentage point of it. Um, my Gulf Coast uh, booker was there. Uh, my brother had left me and gone there, and and I didn't have any idea who else might be going to be gone soon from my southeastern territories uh, to help this project. So it, it wasn't the first time these fans in that part of the country had seen some of these wrestlers, though. As I said earlier, I had been there a lot in 1975. I won their Southern Heavyweight Championship the last night in 74. Uh, and I uh, was the champion uh, and went to every Monday night, went to Memphis uh, for about seven months, the first seven months of 1975. Robert had been there even more than I was, uh, basically throughout most of, of the early 1970s. He kind of got his start there, and he stayed there in that territory. Mongolian Stomper was there, some in late 1975, just about the time I was uh, finishing up for uh, for Jarrett, uh, then uh, Stomper was coming in. And so after I left, uh, Stomper was there for months and months. Gorgeous George Jr. and Rip Smith, they were the only two people that it was their first time there. The Memphis fans hadn't seen them. Don Carson had been in and out of that Tennessee territory for much of his entire career. He was a big name there. David Schultz began his career there. But he hadn't been seen there in a long time, and wow, had he improved. Uh, watching that match, those fans, they they were in awe of David Schultz. It was like, wow, this guy's good now. So every one of those seven Southeastern stars on the card made a big impression on the fans. And why not? <laughs> they yeah. were big-time talent, yeah, uh, no, all no. of them. So, yeah. So – I want to cover just one more thing today, man, about this new relationship with the Memphis Territory. And um, maybe I should say about Robert's new relationship with the Memphis Territory. Uh, he and I had several discussions about his deal with them as, as their new booker. And uh, Rob was my brother, man, and, and I hated to see him go. Uh, you know, from Southeastern, and he'd been in Knoxville with me for years. And uh, and the last thing I wanted to see was him to get taken advantage of somehow. So he, uh, we talked about his actual deal with my father and uh, Jerry Jarrett. And, um, and the, the way he explained it is he was to get a substantial amount of money each week for doing the booking. Uh, but there was another part of that deal when he told me that really concerned me, uh, something very unusual for that particular territory. Uh, uh, they had told him that they were going to give him the right to figure the wrestlers' payoffs for each event based upon the 28% of the gross house that we had always paid at Southeastern to the wrestlers and referees. Uh, Rob said he demanded it. He said, uh, he said, I, I, uh, I, in order for me to build your territory and to get the type of wrestlers I need, I need to have your, your permission and uh, your blessing to pay this 28% of the gross, maybe more, you know, uh, than, than, than you ever have before, but, uh, it's got to happen. And, and I need to do the payoffs. So because 
when you have a great group of wrestlers, uh, some of them are significantly better than others, top guys, and sometimes you have to pay them better in order for them to stay and be happy. So uh, he was setting the stage. He told them what was going to have to happen. They agreed to it. Uh, and I was one of the few wrestling companies, and might have been the only one, to be honest with you, that paid 28% to the talent. Uh, I'm not sure what they were accustomed to pay in there in Memphis, in that territory, but I'm sure it was not 28%. It was somewhere below that figure. So I was very concerned about this part of Rob's deal, and I told him so. You know, and uh, and I and I kind of explained it to him that Rob, uh, they're desperate right now to get help, and and therefore they're willing to make a deal. But but I asked him, I said, Rob, when business improves, and and I think you'll be able to make that happen here. Uh, do you think they're going to stick to the deal? And uh, Rob said, uh, Rob said, Ron, uh, this is the deal I made with them, and if they break it, I'm coming home. I'm coming back. Wow. So, uh, so there was one critical to topic, uh, though, between Rob and I that was not covered in this conversations. In these conversations, we had two or three of them in early 1979. And uh, that topic was where was he going to get the talent that he needed to get that company off the ground? And, and I had committed to help him. Get started by sending them wrestlers every Monday night to Memphis, their major market, with that 11,000-seat building. And that arrangement uh, would not uh, affect our bottom line because we only ran small towns on Mondays in the Knoxville Territory, little small cities. And Montgomery, which we ran on Mondays, we could easily run on Tuesdays. So by sending guys there on Monday and that's it, we were going to be fine in the southeastern Gulf Coast Territory. Well, it kind of seems like to me that you were really bending over backward to do everything you could to help them get their territory going again. Yeah, basically, we all were. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I talked to the partners, uh, the Gulf Coast partners, all of us sat down and talked about it. Bob Armstrong, Jimmy Golden, Roy Lee Welch, me and Rob. And we all agreed this was the right thing to do. Uh, and we were going to find out that maybe it wasn't. Wow. All right. So I tell you, I hate to say it, but I'm sorry, but we're not going to have enough time for a learning tree question on this episode, but I don't know how anything could compare to what we've already experienced today and what might be coming when we breach this subject again. This has been, in my opinion, one of the best stud cast ever never have been you've never been so forthcoming as i recall with your thoughts about 1979 an absolute nightmare in your life so i honestly can't wait for the next studcast to learn more about what's happening there and what's happening with the war all right folks on facebook go to ron fuller welch the tennessee stud like and follow him there to become friend with a legend on Twitter. Find him on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. If you have not done so already, you can follow him on Twitter too. The YouTube channel is Southeastern Rewind. Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. His first YouTube only Ask the Stud question and answer show is there. It's posted now. It happened over the weekend, so you can check it out now. Don't miss it. 
And the next one on Saturday, February 18th of 2023, look for his post there to leave your question for the next one. So it's going to be a continuing series with Ask the Stud. Don't forget that. Classic continentalwrestling.com classiccontinentalwrestling.com that's where you find everything that is the Tennessee stud his classic old school TV shows are great there are now more than 95 southeastern shows 23 continental shows 12 Gulf Coast TV shows available all in the order which they were recorded it's meant to be that way hundreds more are coming Over 50 stud stories are there now. Six stars of the sport, four superstars of the past, and 16 chapters of his incredible audiobook, voiced by the stud, Brutus, and hundreds of hours of other fantastic old school specials. You got to check it out. And all for only $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year, plus the free one-week trial still available. It is the best deal in wrestling. All right, Stud, where do we ride next week? Well, we're going to catch up uh, in both the territories after two weeks of cards. Uh, uh, we will have, uh, have two weeks to talk about. And uh, southeastern uh, Knoxville uh, is going to get a look at a new mass wrestler called the Invader. And the Invader is going to win, uh, along with his big, huge partner, another new star, Jerry Blackwell. They're going to win the Southeastern Tag Belts in their first appearance, basically, for the Tag Championship. And uh, and we're going to cover the TV shows, uh, the results of both those cards, and we'll give the attendances. And then Southeastern Gulf Coast, we're going to focus on two cards as well in that uh, territory. But we're going to be presenting some new stars there. We're going to talk about two TV shows, the results of the cards, the attendances in all three major markets. And then we're going to also continue with our Doomsday 1979 segments, kind of like this one, uh, with a special focus next week on the new Gulf Coast booker, Louis Tillette. Plus, we're going to take a ride back into the Memphis Territory again. So uh, I want to thank everybody, man, for joining us today. Uh, Hope you have enjoyed the ride. Everybody listening out there, please take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. Another really, really awesome stud cast, stud. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This stud cast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic stud cast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.